The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, one of the strangest stories in all of the scriptures actually happens pretty early on, and it happens in Exodus 5. And there's a guy in Exodus that if you've never been around a Bible or a church in your entire life that you have probably heard of, his name is Moses. And much of his life happens in the first five chapters of the book of Exodus. And if you don't want to read it, just watch the Prince of Egypt. You get five chapters in a couple of hours. It's streaming on Peacock right now. You're all set to go. But Moses is born in the middle of a genocide. And what keeps happening is that his people, the Hebrews, are slaves in Egypt, and they just keep making more Hebrews. And every now and then, the Pharaohs decide that they've got to slow down the population growth of the Hebrew people, or else they will rise up and overtake the Egyptians. And so that's one of the things that happens when Moses is born. And so the Pharaoh sends out this decree that everybody, all the baby boys, should be killed. And so through some very clever deception of some Hebrew midwives and Moses' older sister, Miriam, he's left in this basket amongst these reeds. And he's discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh. And she's unnamed in the story. She's actually one of the great heroes of the entire Bible because she does this incredible thing of defying her father. She finds this baby and knows that this child is a Hebrew and they find a mother who is nursing to take care of this baby. And Miriam, Moses' older sister, kind of arranges things so that Moses is then raised while he is nursing by his own mother and then Pharaoh's daughter, takes Moses and raises him in Pharaoh's home. And he gets all the great things that you would get being raised in Pharaoh's home. But he knows something about himself that everybody else knows, that he is still a Hebrew. And he grows up and he sees his fellow Hebrews being mistreated. And in anger one day, with no prompting at all, he decides to kill an Egyptian guard. He thinks nobody sees him. He thinks he's gotten away with it. But the very next day, some other Hebrews point out to him, yeah, we saw you kill that guy. And when Pharaoh finds out, he plans to have Moses killed. So Moses flees out into the desert, running for his life. And in the middle of the desert, he finds seven women at a well, and these women are being harassed. And Moses, he's already killed one guy, so he thinks he's a fighter. And he chases off these marauders who are harassing these seven women, and one of those women he falls in love with and marries. And he ends up getting a job working for the girl's father out in the middle of the desert. There's just not a lot of work to have. And so he ends up working for his father-in-law. And he spends 40 years doing that, watching over his father-in-law's flocks in the field. And one day, 
as he's just taking care of sheep, he sees a fire. And he goes to check it out. And it's this bush that is literally on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And then the bush starts talking. And you've read that story so many times, you've forgotten that that's just weird. (laughs) And it doesn't just start talking. The bush tells Moses that the bush is God and that he's to go back to Egypt and free the bush's people. And crazily enough, Moses believes him. A talking bush claiming to be a God that Moses has never heard of sends him back to Egypt, the place where he escaped as a fugitive wanted for murder. And then you know the rest of the story. Moses goes, he shows up to Pharaoh, and what does Moses say? Let my people go. go. Except he doesn't. We only think that's what Moses says. Moses doesn't show up and say, let my people go. This is how Exodus 5 tells that story. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and Israel will not, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. And Pharaoh continued, now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop laboring. Well, we like that story because we always like stories of liberation, of people who are captive or enslaved, those people set free. And we're so deeply immersed in that narrative in our culture that anytime we think we see somebody slaving, oppressed, We are always on the side of freedom. So it's not a surprise that when we read that story, what we see, what jumps off the page to us is let my people go. But that's not what Moses says. Moses says, let my people go 
so that. That's not a demand for freedom. He says, let them go so that we can go out into the wilderness for three days and have a festival. And what are we going to do out there in the woods? Well, we're going to take some sacrifices out there. That, that's not a call for freedom. No one builds an altar, a statue for that. That's, that's a request to go worship. Moses shows up in Egypt. He's not saying, give me liberty or give me death. He's saying, let us, let us go worship. And if that's not crazy enough, Moses makes an assertion that should have gotten him killed because he says, the God of Israel says, and if you're Pharaoh, this is a problem because if the God of Israel says, let my people go so that, that means that someone is saying that these people aren't your people. They belong to someone else, that someone else has a prior claim, and you are not their God. And, and this is actually a pretty extraordinarily gracious response from Pharaoh, because Pharaoh just says, you know what? I don't know who this God is. I've never heard of this God. I don't know who you're talking about. So no, no, and I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt. I've got nine gods all to myself and every country that we have any kind of commerce with, any kind of treaty with, any kind of allegiance with, I got to deal with all of their gods too. I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt. I have got the best education in the world. And I've never heard of your God. Now Moses should have been dead twice. He's already wanted for murder. He offends the Pharaoh. And for what? Like why bother with all of this? so that people can go and worship. Your God wants worship. But you know what I think is a better idea, Moses? Get back to work. Now you may be thinking, that's really interesting, Sean. But why are you telling us that? It's because we are in the season of Advent, and Advent means coming. And we have decided 
over the years here as part of our community to live into Advent in a different way than the world does. And so we've chosen that the next season for us up until Christmas Day is going to be about how we worship fully, give more, spend less, and love all. And the reason Moses' story is important is because right out of the gate in the story of the scriptures, you are invited to see two competing worlds. That there's a contrast of two things, and they're both good things. One is the world of worship, and the other is the world of work. And while they are both good things, one of them is only good in light of the other. And worship is always good. But work and commerce is only as good as it functions in relationship to worship. There is a world that is coming that you can step into today and live for the rest of your life. And that is the world of worship. Or you can be like Pharaoh and only see the system. Like this is the way the world works. There's a world of worship and there's a world of work and consumption. There's a world that says the only thing that's good or healthy or beautiful about you is how you invest in consumption and commerce, commercialism. And no time in our year is more deeply rooted in the world of consumption and work and commercialism than Christmas. And there have been two things at war in your life from the time that you arrived. And that's whether or not you are going to live in a world of worship or just be a part of the system. The system that dehumanizes and reduces. The system that says you are only as valuable as what you produce. And a sign and signal of the value of your production is what you're able to spend at Christmas. There's a world that is opposed to a life of worship. And that world typically comes with dollar signs. And this happens again later in the life of Jesus. Do you, do you know how everybody that you've ever met that has anger problems loves the story about Jesus clearing the temple? <laughs> like, 
They don't want to deal with their own anger or take a walk or drink less caffeine or go to therapy. So they just pull out that story. A lot of people know that story, but they don't actually look deeply into that story. Because this comes up again, and this is how the gospel writer John talks about it in John 2. He says, the time was near to, the cel- to celebrate the Passover, the festival commemorating when God rescued his children from slavery in Egypt. So Jesus went to Jerusalem for the celebration. Upon arriving, he entered the temple to worship. But the porches and colonnades were filled with merchants selling sacrificial animals, such as doves, oxen, and sheep, and exchanging money. Jesus fashioned a whip of cords and used it with skill driving out animals, then scattered the money and overturned the tables, emptying profiteers from the house of God. There were dove merchants still standing around and Jesus reprimanded them. What are you still doing here? Get all your stuff and haul it out of here. Stop making my father's house a place for your own profit. And one of the things you have to know about that story is as pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they weren't bringing all of their doves and oxen with them. They would get them when they got there. And profiteers were taking advantage of pilgrims who were coming to worship. That's why Jesus is upset. Jesus doesn't turn over tables because he's having a bad day or somebody looked at him wrong. And there's a collision between the world that you want to live in and even more accurately, the world that you're capable of seeing. And when John tells this story in John 2, this is a commentary on Exodus 5. There is a competing world, and you get to choose which one you see. You can see the world of consumption, of production, or you can see the world of worship. A couple of years ago, uh, I was in this Facebook group with a group of landlords. And that was really important to me because at the time I was a landlord and I wanted to keep track of what I needed to do to be a fairly decent landlord. And so what was happening at the time is that property values were increasing. And so there was one particular landlord in the group and his tenant's lease was coming up for renewal and I wanted to follow what he was doing because we had tenants and our tenant's lease was coming up for renewal. And so he decided that since the property values had increased, that the thing that he needed to do was to increase the rent on the houses that he rented out. And so that's what he did. And like me, he claimed to be a follower of Jesus and he raised the rent so high that the family had to move out Kids find a different school. In fact, because so many other landlords had raised their rents, it took them a while to find something. They spent a month 
living in a hotel out of suitcases. And when asked about that, he said, I didn't decide that. The market did. And honestly, in one world, that's fair. Because very easily, the market could have been down. And the tenants said, you know what? The market's down right now. We can find another place that's bigger and nicer and newer for the same or less money. And in a certain way of seeing the world, that would have been fair too. Because we live in a place and a time where we say the market decides what's valuable and how it's valuable. And Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, God decides what's valuable. Markets, markets define the value of something, but we do not have to let them define our values. There's a world that Pharaoh can't see. And it is a world where people and things are valuable because of who God is and the only way for you and I to see the same world that God does is through worship to realign our motives and hearts and values with what God is doing in the world. The Hebrew slaves had been enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Moses shows up, the man of God, with the very thing that none of us would want someone to show up with when we were in trouble a request to worship. But it's only through worship that we rebuke what Pharaoh's world has done to us. To say this is what is valuable and central and what and who we were created to be. So how do you do that? Well, one of the first steps would just be to name and notice it. To notice this system that we are all caught up in, that we have to all play some role in, is fundamentally dehumanizing and enslaving. And I'm going to name it and notice it when I see it that I'm not gonna play along, that I'm not gonna tell people, well, that's just how the world works or that's the real world. Because what is the world other than an agreement that we have made with one another about how things have to be? And Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, it doesn't have to be. 
And then we just reject and rejoice. Reject the system that turns us all into products and rejoice that another world is possible. Well, because I'm a reader, I own a copy of the book that all readers own and have never read called Infinite Jest. And the reason we all own it and have never read it is because it's about this thick and it's the kind of thing that you want on your bookshelf to impress other reader friends when they come over to your house. But it's written by one of America's greatest novelists. His name was David Foster Wallace. And he suffered terribly from depression and other mental illness and sadly um, died by suicide. But before he did that, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College, which is one of the most powerful speech acts that has ever been done. He was an atheist, but in the middle of his speech, which has come to be known as this is water, this is what he says. He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, by which he means Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truth or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And this is what he's saying. And this is the clash between Moses and Pharaoh. Is that right now, today, and tomorrow, you get to choose what you want to worship. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.